There are, as you know, so many topics in God's Word to consider. There's creation. There's Christology. There's the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of God. There are topics that we could cover. Marriage, singleness, parenting, professions. There's so many topics that we could cover in the study of God's Word. Somebody could ask the following question. With all of those amazing topics and so many more, why take the time to study the doctrine of hell? And I want to begin by considering the answer to that question. Tonight's message will be an answer to that question. Why study the doctrine of hell? I will present to you tonight ten reasons. These are not exhaustive. We could list more, but I'm going to provide for you tonight ten reasons as to why we ought to study, linger over, meditate upon, understand the doctrine of hell. There's no doubt that the doctrine of hell is a weighty subject. It is. But it is a precious revelation that God has given to us. It's part of God's precious revelation. God has revealed what awaits those who persist in unbelief and rebellion to the Gospel. Mankind does not need to guess nor wonder. The God of heaven has spoken. He's not shy about it. Neither was His eternally begotten Son during His earthly ministry. And those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit must know what the Spirit has revealed through biblical writers about this reality. So my hope is this, that in this initial consideration of the doctrine of hell, you all, we all together, will come to better understand why it is so important that we give attention to the subject of hell. The first reason I'm going to present to you is this. Hell is an elementary doctrine of Scripture. Reason number one. Hell is the elementary school of this Christian life. It's an elementary doctrine of Scripture. That is not a description that I've personally assigned to the doctrine, as though I you know, just am giving you my own opinion. It is the way the biblically, uh, the Spirit-inspired writer of Hebrews categorizes the doctrine of hell, if you will. In Hebrews 5, remember this. In Hebrews 5, the inspired writer is telling those to whom he's writing the following. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. He says... For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, putting aside other things that I could say about that verse and about that text, let us just simply ask the following question. What are the first principles that the writer of Hebrews has in mind that he's referencing in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12? Well, we don't have to guess. You just go on into Hebrews chapter 6 and you read the following in the opening verses, beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. So the writer of Hebrews is saying one of those fundamental principles of Christ, it's not only repentance towards God, it's not only faith in Christ, but one of the fundamental, one of the the basics of Christianity is knowing that there is a judgment to come, and specifically that that judgment is an eternal judgment. 
This is basic Christian doctrine. Now, we'll talk more about this, Lord willing, in future studies, but that word that's used there for eternal is an uh, inflected form of the Greek word ionion, and it basically means perpetual, everlasting, or eternal. It's used in other places in the New Testament to speak of the eternal life that believers have. And it's also used, I'm going to present to you a specific verse, to speak of the eternal punishment of those who reject the gospel and those who do not come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in Matthew 25, verse 46, he used that same word, ionion, an inflected form of it, to speak of everlasting punishment and eternal life. He said, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And again, according to the writer of Hebrews, this is Christianity 101. This isn't Christianity 301. It's not like, you know, you bring somebody to Christ with like the love of God and you don't really tell them about the wrath of God and you don't really tell them about eternal judgment. You just let them get in the doors. You teach them about the love of God and then sometime down the road, you tell them about the doctrine of hell. It doesn't work like that. According to the writer of Hebrews, Christianity 101, right there with repentance, right there with faith in Christ, right there is understanding that there is an eternal, an unending, an everlasting, Lasting, a perpetual judgment that is coming. How everlasting, how perpetual, how unending. As unending and as perpetual as the everlasting life of a believer is. Matthew 25, 46. So is the unending, perpetual nature of the judgment for those who persist in rebellion against the gospel of God's grace. This is ground level Christianity. And it makes sense, right? Doesn't it make sense that it would be ground-level Christianity? Because if you are presenting the good news of the gospel, doesn't it make sense that the backdrop of the wrath of God would be presented? So you know if this isn't Christianity 101 for somebody, something got missed in the gospel presentation. Because you have to understand what you're saved from. You're saved from the wrath of God. How is the wrath of God manifested? It's manifested, we see in Revelation 20, it's manifested in the lake of fire, where there is perpetual, everlasting, unending, conscious judgment. This is Christianity 101. And it ought to be. Because the good news of the gospel is that Christ has died for sinners like us. So that all who repent by the grace of God and look to Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins would not go there because he bore what he bore on the cross. Some additional uh, thoughts about this. When you look in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 and eternal judgment is referenced uh, specifically in verse 2, you would see that it comes right after the resurrection of the dead. So that's another basic, fundamental principle of Christianity. But one of the things I want to call your attention to is that the eternal judgment that's spoken of in Hebrews 6.2 comes after the resurrection of the dead, which lines up with the Scriptures, uh, Revelation 20, which we'll look at in a moment. But before we go there, I do want to offer a point of clarification here. So as to be clear, please know that just as for a believer... When a believer dies, a believer is not waiting for the resurrection to enjoy the bliss of being in the presence of God, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
Well, in like manner, conversely, when an unbeliever dies, they are not waiting for the resurrection of the dead to be in a state of judgment. That judgment begins upon death for an unbeliever. I'll show you a couple of places where you can see this in the scriptures. Luke chapter 16 would be the first place that I would go to show this. In Luke chapter 16, we know that Jesus is speaking about the rich man and Lazarus. So I'll call your attention to a few verses there. In Luke chapter 16, verse 22, we see that the rich man died and he was buried. But then in verse 23, we see that the rich man was in a place of torment in Hades. So I want you to see both of those things together. He dies, his physical body is buried, Luke 16, 22, but where is his soul? His soul is in torment in Hades. You know this is before the resurrection of the dead for multiple reasons, but one very clearly is you see the rich man's concern for his brothers a little bit later on. He does not want them to go to where he is. So that tells you this is before the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus is teaching that upon death, there is a state of judgment in Hades prior to the sentencing at what's referred to as the great white throne judgment, which I'll um, get to in a moment to read you a passage from that. Peter also wrote of this present judgment. So you don't only have to go to Luke 16 to see the present judgment that happens for somebody who dies in unbelief, rejecting the grace of God and the gospel. You go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. There, um, the text very literally reads, Then the Lord knows to deliver the devout out of temptation. Watch the language here. And to keep the unrighteous being punished. That's the literal rendering of the language there. And to keep the unrighteous being punished unto the day of judgment. So there is judgment that's happening before the resurrection and the sentencing that happens at the white throne. I'm saying the white throne, and some of you might not be familiar with that. Um, that's referencing Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, we see what's referred to as the great white throne judgment after those who are outside of Christ, those who have rejected the gospel, they've been resurrected. They've given, been given bodies at that point, fitted for the place of judgment that they are going to be in, for the judgment that they are going to endure and in Revelation 20, after John describes the crushing of the final satanic rebellion, uh, where he says that the devil was cast into the lake of fire and of brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet, the implication of the languages, where the beast and the false prophet were, and where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, or for the ages of ages. After that, he writes this in Revelation chapter 20, verses, 15, uh, verses 11 through uh, 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, this is the elementary doctrine of eternal judgment. That when a person dies outside of Christ, according to Luke 16, 2 Peter 2, judgment begins. But then there comes a resurrection. And then when that resurrection happens, those who are outside of Christ are brought before the great white throne. There is a sentencing that happens based upon the light that they rejected and the evil that they committed. And then at that point, such individuals who have persisted in rebellion are, per the language that's used here, cast into the lake of fire. And to use language from earlier in the book of Revelation, that's where this um, torment of holy, righteous judgment goes on forever and ever. So I say that to say, anyone not found in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. This is the doctrine of eternal judgment, and you've seen in our first point, according to the Scripture, it is an elementary doctrine for the Christian. So that's reason number one. Reason number two to study the doctrine of hell is because the Lord Jesus spoke so much about it. Because the Lord Jesus spoke so much about it. It's often said, and I think rightly, that Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Scriptures. Um, I think that's correct. Jesus had much to say about the judgment that awaits those who persist in unrepentance. Now, if you were to do a kind of word search of Jesus using the word hell, our English word hell, you'd see it used by Jesus 11 times. Uh, now, the word that's uh, translated as hell is the word Gehenna. And we'll talk more about that, Lord willing, in the days ahead. Um, It's used 12 times in the New Testament. Outside of one time where it's used by James in the epistle of James, James chapter 3, verse 6, every other time it's found, it's found on the lips of Jesus. Jesus is using that word. But then you might think, okay, I thought Jesus spoke about hell a lot. But you're telling me that it's only 11 times that he uses the word Gehenna. I mean, that doesn't sound like all too much. And what I want you to know right here is that even when Jesus is not using that specific word, he's using other words to speak of this place of eternal judgment. I mean, you go through the Gospels, I'll give you some examples. He describes hell as the furnace of fire. Matthew chapter 13, verse 42 and 50. He speaks of hell as being the place of everlasting fire. Matthew 18, verse 18. Matthew 25, 41. He speaks of it being a place of outer darkness. Matthew 8, 12. Matthew 23, 13. Matthew 25, 30. He speaks of it as being the place of everlasting punishment. Matthew 25, verse 46. He speaks of it repeatedly as being the place where there is weeping. There's this sorrow and there's this gnashing of teeth. There's this anger. Describes it as that. Matthew 8, 12. Matthew 13, 42, Matthew 13, 50, Matthew 22, 13, Matthew 24, 51, Matthew 25, 30. So even if he's not using the word Gehenna, he's using other words in different places to speak of this place and think of the mercy of God in that, not hiding it, not wanting to be popular and saying, are people going to be okay with this? He's just telling the truth. The same one who came down from heaven understands the reality of hell and he spoke about it. He depicted what it was using strong language, yes, but that language is meant to communicate the graphic nature of the holy and righteous judgment that awaits. And Jesus was gracious 
in declaring that. And another thing I want you to think about, and we'll talk about this Lord willing in future teachings as well, it does appear that the uh, understanding among first century Jews, at least, at least to some degree, was that there was a concept of hell and that there was a concept of eternal judgment. Arguably the predominant view of first century Jews. Now if Jesus did not believe in eternal punishment, if he did not believe in the concept of hell, in the reality of a place that is hell, you would expect him, especially if you go through Matthew chapter 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, you would expect Jesus to correct misconceptions. You have heard it said, but I say to you. I mean, he did that with divorce. He did that with oaths. He did that with loving your enemies. And if that first century view was wrong and there was no hell that should be understood in the minds of people, you would think that Jesus would offer some corrective. But rather, what he does not only affirms the reality of a place of punishment, he expounds upon it, and he teaches it authoritatively and accurately, regardless of whatever else the people thought Jesus is speaking the truth about it. Even Bertrand Russell, the agnostic British philosopher um, who wrote his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, he agrees that Jesus unequivocally affirmed the doctrine of hell. He writes, there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ, certainly as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment. So I want you to see very clearly, make no mistake, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, the one who took on flesh to die in our place, He affirmed the doctrine of hell. He spoke about it at greater length than any other person in Scripture. And we would do well to consider the words that He spoke. We'll do that to a greater degree in the days ahead. But let me just have you listen to some of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, Lord willing, in future weeks, we will unpack these verses together Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. I mean, Jesus' language clearly attests to the horrific, the righteous judgment that hell is. Again, something else that we'll speak about more in the days ahead, but some of you might have heard that the word Gehenna um, doesn't really refer to hell. It just refers to a garbage dump. As though Jesus was telling his hearers to, you know, fear him who could throw you into the garbage dump. I want to say, to quote uh, Robert Yarbrough, 
Um, it is often claimed, speaking of Gehenna, to have been a site near Jerusalem where refuse was burned. And we could speak more about that, uh, the Valley of Hinnom, where child sacrifice had been practiced, and this place was believed to have become a place where refuse was thrown, a place where burning was happening continually, and so on. But make no mistake, Jesus is not telling His hearers to simply fear the one who could throw them into the refuse dump. Jesus is using, again to use language from Yarbrough, a despicable, disgusting, and harrowing geographical reference familiar to him and his listeners to warn of an eschatological destiny that his listeners should seek to avoid at all costs. Jesus told his hearers, don't fear the one who could kill the body and do no more, but fear the one who can cast soul and body into hell. Jesus taught, expounded upon, to a great degree, the doctrine of hell. Reason number three. It's kind of joined to reason number two. The Bible speaks much about hell. The Bible speaks much about hell. So you go through the Gospels, you see Jesus speak much about hell. But hell is not only spoken about by Jesus. There are many other writers in the Bible who address it in one way or another. The Apostle Paul, for instance... He said that God in flaming fire, to use language from 2 Thessalonians 1.8, will take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't use the word Gehenna, but he doesn't need to. He's talking about God taking flaming vengeance, in flaming fire, vengeance on those who do not know God. Paul goes on to describe this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 as those unbelievers being punished with everlasting destruction or everlasting ruination. The writer of Hebrews, you already saw in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2, he made reference to eternal judgment. A little bit later on, the writer of Hebrews speaks about, quote, a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27. He goes on in verse 31 of Hebrews 10 and he says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I've told you of how Peter addresses it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter speaking about the judgment that's happening right now. The unrighteous being punished unto the day of judgment. 2 Peter 2, 9. Jude wrote of how Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them were, in the judgment that came upon them, they were, quote, an example suffering the vengeance or punishment of eternal fire. So in other words, when you see what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah, when you go in the book of Genesis and you see that, it is a kind of type. It is a kind of foreshadowing of the judgment of Almighty God. The vengeance of eternal fire is being foreshadowed in the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. Not long after that, in Jude's epistle, Jude speaks of apostates, quote, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Jude, verse 13. The apostle John, outside of other inferences in his gospel, he wrote much about hell in the book of Revelation. 
I read to you moments ago, he said that anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 15. In Revelation 21, 8, in the following chapter, he says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8. Other examples could go on from the New Testament. I could give you examples from the Old Testament of how Daniel spoke of the resurrection happening and people being resurrected to everlasting shame and condemnation. We'll talk more about that. You can go to Daniel chapter 12. Look at the opening three verses there. We'll, we'll reference Isaiah. We'll reference other passages. But why am I saying that right here? Because we ought to study the doctrine of hell because it is in God's Word and it's not only, it's not like simply an isolated, rarely mentioned topic. And even then we should study it. We want to study everything in God's Word. But this is one that is sown, if you will, in many places in the Scriptures. Reason number four, why should we study the doctrine of hell? Because it protects Christians from a number of errors. Because studying the doctrine protects Christians from a number of errors. We live in a world today, as believers have, where the doctrine of hell is openly discredited or misunderstood or rarely spoken about. And I don't know if this is an annual thing that happens in Times Square, but as New Year approached in Times Square, uh, just briefly flicking the channels just to see the state of things and so on, interestingly, in the providence of God, happened to flick on the TV in such a moment where there they are, the people in the city, many people swaying and singing together John Lennon's song, Imagine. And you know that song's treated in many ways kind of like an anthem. In the opening lines of that song, people singing it as they're swaying back and forth together, saying, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. And that song in so many ways reflects the heart of fallen man. Like Adam and Eve. After the fall. Desiring to hide from God. Desiring to run away from God. So that song reflects that desire to break away from realities that God has revealed. Created realities like heaven and hell. Man would love to do away with the subject of hell. You know that hell is sometimes made a joke. Uh, you know, worldly bands in times past, right? Have sung about being on a highway to hell. Um, I won't give you a whole bunch of examples. You know some of them, right? Now, you've spoken to people who say, well, if I do go to hell, at least I'll be there with my friends. I could give you examples, but I don't want to um, fill your mind with examples of others who have blasphemed, mocked, and shown great contempt for the doctrine of hell. But hell is mocked by the world. And you know, maybe many of you, like me, you just had wrong views of hell because you had that from maybe TV shows or cartoons and you had misconceptions. So why should Christians study the doctrine of hell? Because we don't want to have these errors in our minds. There are a lot of people out there who think that hell is a place that's under the administration of Satan. There are people who have seen cartoons or movies and they think that if somebody goes to hell, that Satan is kind of like the administrator of hell. 
You know, he goes down there with a pitchfork. He, you know, does a little bit of torment, has his other demonic um, fallen angels doing some, you know, tormenting of people, and he's administrating it. He's not administrating it. You look at the language in Scripture, we see that he is cast into the lake of fire. That's the depiction in the Scriptures. Whose hell is it? It's God's hell. God is the one who administers the punishment in hell. Not Satan. And I think that is important. When you look at Revelation, you can see that very clearly. Some people have said, you know, hell is a state of mind. Hell is not a state of mind. You go into Scriptures, hell is a place. Hell is a place where Satan, his fallen angels, and those who persist in unrepentance and don't believe the gospel, it is a place where people go. It is a place, you just look at the language in Scripture, right? It's a place where people are cast into. Cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 10, an example of that. It's a place. Remember when Judas Iscariot died, he went to his own place. And that would even speak of the present place where punishment is happening. Or the rich man. He's described as being in a place. So that's the present punishment that's happening. And that will give way to the place that is the lake of fire. Some think that people in hell will repent and that God will not let them out, but that is not the picture that we see in Scripture. The picture that we see in Scripture is that there is this gnashing of teeth that happens in hell. And that connotes, among other things, anger. Gnashing of teeth, this this anger, like the kind of anger that Stephen's persecutors had as they stoned him. This anger, this vitriol, and the picture that the Scripture paints of hell is people persisting in unrepentance. You go to Luke chapter 16, you don't see the rich man say sorry. You don't see him repent. You don't say, I can't believe I persisted in unrebellion. I can't believe I didn't hear the word through the prophets. I can't believe that I persisted in my unbelief and so on. No, there's none of that. Rather, the picture is persistent rebellion, ongoing rebellion, ongoing hatred towards God. And doubtless, those individuals that are gnashing their teeth, if they could get their hands around God, they would so want to. We live in a world where funerals, you know. Have you ever been to a funeral? Now, if you've been to a funeral where it hasn't been said that the person was in heaven when they clearly did not profess faith in Christ from everything that you know, people knew, then you take that as a plus. And the gospel was proclaimed, and, and you're like, okay, praise God for that. But you know that one of the strange and sad realities is that you go to most funerals and regardless of who a person was, they are said to be in a better place. And I think if Christians go to enough funerals, maybe you just get confused. Like there are all these people that are saying they're in a better place. There's this religious figure, that religious figure, and maybe, you know, we're just kind of stuffy and looking at the scriptures and maybe we're wrong about these things. And I want you to see the word of God for yourself. I want you to see it as we have already begun to undertake the study tonight. I want you to see it so that you're not confused. See, there's so many things that could lead to um, confusion. And what about in the professing church? Right? In the professing church, there could be a lot of confusion about hell for many reasons. Not the least of which, just the absence of teaching on it. I mean, you go to some places... And it's like you could sit there and you can catalog a whole bunch of messages and you can say, have I ever heard the lake of fire referenced? Has the word hell ever been referenced? And if you don't think that's going to have an effect on the people of God who are actually sitting there, then you are wrong. 
because the people are being taught by example, yet alone they're not being taught what the scripture says. Jesus has a lot to say about this. We saw this in our study verse by verse through the doctrine of Luke. We saw this in our study of hell back in 2013. It's in the scriptures. And if you're not giving your people the full counsel of scripture, what are you teaching them by way of your example? If you are apathetic towards the doctrine of hell, don't you think that people will become apathetic towards it? If you don't teach it, maybe that suggests that you don't believe it. And maybe people will start wondering whether or not they should believe it. Because you probably don't believe it if you're not teaching it. So it is of great importance that we as Christians have a good understanding of the doctrine of hell, that we know its importance. You start reading about the doctrine of hell, you start listening to teachings on it, of course you'll hear something like this. It's common uh, to hear that the kind of preaching that characterized the Great Awakening seems long forgotten in much of evangelicalism. And I'm not talking about gratuitous references to hell, because people could do that. People can go beyond what is written and then try to make hell sound so graphic and then describe torments that the Bible does not describe. You don't do that. Stick to what is written. Stick to unpacking the Word of God. There's all kinds of confusion. There's confusion about eternal punishment. There are people under the guise of evangelicalism who have taught that um, eternal punishment is not a thing. Annihilationism is a thing. That at some point the people cease to exist, the people who are in hell. There are those who teach universalism. There are those who teach post-mortem evangelism, meaning that people will have either an initial chance or ongoing chances to receive Christ after death. There's all this confusion that a sound understanding of the doctrine of hell would alleviate. You look in the scriptures, there is no annihilationism. There's eternal, everlasting, ongoing punishment. There's smoke of torment rising forever. There is no post-mortem evangelism. It's whether or not by the grace of God here in this life, whether you trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. Universalism is not taught in the scriptures. And part of what we're going to do in our study is we're going to look at those texts together and we're going to see what those texts actually teach in their context so that you can know what the Bible does teach in texts that are being misused by many people. I thought this was worth um, referencing. Um, Dr. Robert Morey, in the introduction of his book, uh, Death and the Afterlife, he writes that there is, um, quote, a discernible historical cycle to the Christian church's attitude towards the doctrine of hell. Um, he describes the pattern like this, beginning with a period of time where the doctrine is embraced. He says, after acknowledgement, there is indifference. So in other words, there's a point in time where the doctrine of hell is preached, it is taught, it is expounded upon, but then after that acknowledgement, what happens is that indifference comes. It, it, it's not really preached that often anymore. It's, it's you know, the, the teaching, the teachers become sort of indifferent to it. Gospel presentations at this point focus in on the love of God, but exclude the negative side of God's wrath. So he said, if you look at history, oftentimes what happens is there, there's acknowledgement and then there's indifference. And then he says, after indifference, there is ignorance. The idea being, because the doctrine is not commonly spoken of, because preachers are maybe fearful of being labeled as fire and brimstone preachers, right? Who wants to be called that? Who wants to be called a fire and brimstone preacher? I would argue you just want to unpack the word of God faithfully. You want to be one who proclaims the gospel and the truth that's inseparable to it. But after indifference often comes ignorance. And then after ignorance comes doubt. After doubt comes denial. After denial, irritation. So after there's denial, you'll have people within the body of Christ who say, okay, enough's enough. 
I'm getting irritated with this. And then what they will do is that they will begin to write to affirm the doctrine. So after irritation comes affirmation. And then the cycle begins again according to um, R.A. Morey's uh, evaluation of what often happens in the history of the church. So I say all that to say, church, it is important for us to study the doctrine of hell to avoid all of those errors and much more. Reason number five. And I'll mention this briefly because this will be exemplified in what's coming, Lord willing, in our upcoming classes. Um, reason number five, because it will help us understand how to rightly divide the Word of God. We're going to walk through the Word of God together, and you're going to understand how to rightly divide passages on the doctrine of hell, as well as how to properly understand passages that are misused and used to teach things like universalism and so on. Um, reason number six, why should we study the doctrine of hell? Because it will help you better understand how sinful and wicked sin is. This is so important. I want everybody in this room to understand this. Hell is not God's overreaction. Hell is not God flying off the handle. Hell is not God losing His temper. Hell is the righteous, holy, right judgment of God. You may struggle getting your mind around it, right? We as fallen human beings, we can struggle with getting our minds around it, but God doesn't struggle with getting His mind around it, if you will. It is a right and holy, just reaction to the sinfulness of men and of angels. I think that is so important for us to understand. Now think about that. If hell, and it is, if hell is the holy, righteous, and appropriate apportioning of punishment to the devil and his angels and those who persist in unbelief, how serious is sin? Think about what this will do to your view of sin. If you start understanding the doctrine of hell, outer darkness, fire, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, and one sin would be enough to send any one of us to hell. What does that teach us about God's holiness? What does that teach us about our sinfulness? See, the doctrine of hell will help your doctrine of God. All of a sudden, you start seeing the sinfulness of sin a lot more clearly, and you're still not seeing it that clear. You start seeing the holiness of God a lot more clearly, and you're still not seeing it that clearly. He's so much more holy than you and I could realize, and our sin is so much more heinous than we could realize. But if you come to the place where you say, okay, hell is a right, holy, just apportioning of punishment. That is a non-negotiable. I dare not call God unlawful. I dare not call God as one who flies off the handle. I dare not call God unholy and unrighteous. I bow the knee before him. If he's revealed it in his word, it is holy and just and right and righteous. What does that tell me about my sin? What should that do to me? What should that do to you? Think about it. And I know we struggle with this, right? But if you begin to understand the dignity of the one that we've sinned against, the grandeur, the magnitude. I mean, it's, it's a wicked thing to treat one of God's created animals with, con with contempt in some sort of gratuitous, violent way. 
it's a horrific thing for a man or a woman to assault the image of God in a man or a woman. And you already are seeing the increase in seriousness, right? How serious is it to commit high treason against the holy God of the universe? We have to take God's word for it because we can't even begin to understand what it, what it means to offend his infinite holiness and perfection. The fact that God has told us that our sins deserve eternal punishment and eternal torment tells us that our sins are worse than we are able to imagine. Reason number seven, why should we study the doctrine of hell? Because it helps us to be God-centered and not man-centered. It helps us to be God-centered and not man-centered. Let me illustrate that to you from a portion of Scripture, Revelation chapter 11. So in Revelation chapter 11, when the seventh trumpet is blown in the eleventh chapter of the book of Revelation, loud voices in heaven are heard saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now shortly after that, we see the 24 elders who represent the church. We saw that in our study of heaven when we looked at Revelation 4. The 24 elders representing the church, they are depicted as falling on their faces and worshiping and saying the following. Revelation chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. I say that to say this. When we get a glimpse of heaven, and we see the kind of worship that the Lord received, even in the midst of judgment, we see a God-centered worship, not a man-centered one. People aren't saying, why, O oh Lord, did you judge the people the way that you did? We are dissatisfied with your sense of justice. That's not what they're saying. Rather, they praise Him. They are fixed upon a God who is glorious in judgment, who does all things well and rightly and justly. So if you understand the doctrine of hell, you're going to be more so. God-centered, and you're going to be protected from being man-centered. Reason number eight to study the doctrine of hell. It is protective for the Christian's heart. It is protective for the Christian's heart. I've told you already that I think the doctrine of hell is protective against error. But I also want to say that I believe strongly that it can have a protective effect on the Christian's heart and mind. In Matthew 24, verse 12, Jesus stated, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Now, lawlessness can lead to the love of many growing cold in many ways, right? If lawlessness abounds in a society, right? What's going to happen is, a lot of times, if there are people who are abusing the system, right, and, and, and stealing from people and so on, and oppressing people and so on, oftentimes what can happen? There could be food shortages. There could be famines. And then that could lead 
people's love to grow cold because they say, you know what? I need to protect myself. Self-preservation is the name of the game, not so much self-sacrifice right now. So the increase in lawlessness can lead to the love of many growing cold in many ways. Selfishness becomes more um, instilled. It becomes more of the, the practice. But one concern that I have for the people of God, particularly in the days in which we're living, is that if you behold increasing measures of evil in society, what can happen is the well of compassion can begin to dry up. And all of a sudden, now whether you're on the, on the receiving end of persecution of some form or another, um, doubtless as many of you have been, or maybe it's if it comes in a greater degree in the days ahead, what can happen is the compassion of Christians can grow cold. And all of a sudden, in place of compassion, all of a sudden bitterness can begin to rise. Hatred can begin to rise. And I think the doctrine of hell can be so protective, not just in the sense of the doctrine of hell, but a lingering over it. If you imagine somebody, let's say there's somebody who tried to cost you your job because you're a Christian. And they, they didn't like you because you shared the gospel with them and then you found out that they went behind your back and they did what they could to have you lose your job. You would be offended by that. Like, that's my job. That, that's a means of providing for my family and so on. So then how do you protect yourself from becoming embittered by that? Well, one of the ways you can protect yourself from becoming embittered by that or with what we see going on in society is you linger over the doctrine of hell. And it fans the flames, I think, of compassion. You start saying this person doesn't know what they're doing. And if they persist in, in, in unbelief and rebellion, the moment's going to come one day where time's up. They enter into a place where there's no getting out until the resurrection comes and then they're cast into the lake of fire. You start thinking of that person and you say, that's scary. Well, there's going to be coming a moment where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a casting out to outer darkness. And this person will be there if they don't repent and receive Christ. And I think it could be so protective. So rather than becoming embittered, you linger over the doctrine of hell. And oftentimes it will soften your heart and you will begin to pray. And you'll pray for their repentance. And then sometimes it will be protective in the other way. Right? God, through the Apostle Paul, said to Christians not to take out vengeance on other people, but to give place to wrath. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. So you could just say, I'm trusting this matter into God's hands. I don't have to have this stored up hatred and bitterness. I'm just going to give it to the Lord and the Lord is going to handle this. And if the Lord ends up saving such a one, may it be. And maybe your heart will be warmed along the way. But you know He will do all things right in so many ways. I think the doctrine of hell can be protective for Christians. I think it can compel you to worship. If you have a good understanding of the doctrine of hell, you will better understand what you have been saved from. You can say, I've been saved from that? I was snatched out of that fire, the fire that's never quenched. And then what should that lead to happen in our lives? What should happen? We should praise Him. We should say, thank you, God, for rescuing me. Thank you for having mercy on me. Thank you for snatching me out of the fire. Thank you for immersing me into Christ. Thank you for saving me. I didn't save me. You saved me. You opened my eyes. You sent your Son. You sent forth your Spirit. You saved me from that. If you have a better understanding of the doctrine of hell, it can help spur you on to evangelism. 
Not because you think that you're going to be the ultimate determining factor in seeing somebody come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that God has appointed those things and determined those things from before the foundation of the world. But you can't help being a creature, having the gospel, living in time, having compassion for your fellow human beings who are outside of Christ. And you can't help but be driven to want to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. And you can tell them there is coming a judgment. And if you die without Christ, there's no going back. There's no going back to a moment like this. And you in earnestness can proclaim the gospel with compassion mingled in your proclamation. Reason number nine to study the doctrine of hell. It will help you understand better who God is. It will help you better understand the love of God. And the glory of the cross. And the glory of the cross. If you were to ask the question, why does hell exist? The answer is for the glory of God. The follow-up question would be this. How does hell glorify God? According to Romans chapter 9, verse 22, it displays His wrath and makes His power known. Follow-up question to that would be, How does that glorify God? God's holiness is displayed in His demonstration of justice. God's righteousness is displayed in His hatred of sin and lawlessness. God's faithfulness is displayed in His being true to His Word again and again. The infinite dignity of who He is and the magnitude of such unrepentant rebellion against Him warrants eternal judgment. So in the punishment of hell, His infinite worth is put on display. His infinite dignity is put on display as well as His power, holiness, wrath, justice, and so on. And if you understand the doctrine of hell, you will better understand the love of God. Think about this. One sin, one sin would be enough to have you and I cast into the lake of fire. That tells you a little bit of how God feels about sin, doesn't it? Of Christ, we know it said in Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, that He loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. God hates sin more than you could even imagine. Have you sinned? more than you can keep count of. Does he hate that sin? More than you can imagine. But he saved you. He opened your eyes to Christ. How much does he love you? That you could do all that that he hates. You'll know, I don't know, how much he hates that sin. He hates it more than we can imagine. It's an affront to him on a level we can barely begin to understand. Yet despite that affront, despite how he hates that sin, he sent his son, he sent forth his spirit, opened your eyes to believe in Christ, and he saved you to forever be his. To enjoy Him as your Father. To enjoy Christ as your Savior and as your Bridegroom. And have the Spirit inside of you. How amazing, how great is this love. And then you think of the glories of the cross. You just start thinking in your finite mind. You just start saying, if it would take me all of eternity and I can never exhaust the judgment of God, what did Christ bear on my behalf on the cross? To be truly man, to be my representative, and yet to be truly God, to take the wrath of God and to come out the other side. What love for Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin. For Christ to be made a curse for us. What love. What did Jesus bear 
in his body on the cross. The curse of God. The wrath of God. What would take you and I forever to never exhaust the Lord Jesus Christ in His great love exhausted on the cross for us. What manner of love is that? Thanks be to God. Reason number 10. The final reason for tonight. Reason number 10. Why study the doctrine of hell? Because its very existence is of great interest to every human being. To every human being. There's so many people that are on the planet. There's so many people who die each minute. I um, did a, a search and I, I, I tried to find how many people had um, died um, in the year 2023. According to one counting, um, it was 57,290,400. And then I'm just there with my um, calculator on the phone and just trying to do the math. Saying, okay, if, if that's how many people it is, and I don't know, I mean, I, I wouldn't like, you know, cross-check and do this and that. That's one, that's one reference right there. That would mean that there are, if you do the math, 109 people that die per minute. That's almost two people per second. How sobering is that? And if you think that we are, as the Scripture says, by nature, children of wrath, that we have the sinful um, nature and we have this proclivity towards sin, you know that human beings are on this broad road that leads to destruction. And you know there's only one off-ramp. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The same One who is the way to heaven, the way, the truth, and the life, is the same one who is the way to escape hell. That's the only way. He's the only way. And so this is of great concern to every human being that's on the planet. It's of valid interest to every human being that's on the planet. Brothers and sisters, you have the Gospel. Proclaim it. Proclaim God's holiness and that there is a judgment coming, but God has made a way of escape through placing judgment upon His Son. Jesus is the off-ramp. We all were at one time on the road that leads to destruction. But then the Spirit of God opened our eyes to the off-ramp. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Proclaim it. And make sure. Right? How sobering is this reality to think and why this is so important for everybody who enters into a professing church. Professing Christians who are in the local church. Because every one of us, one million years from now, We'll be somewhere, either enjoying the presence of God for all of eternity or under the righteous wrath of God for all of eternity. So when the Scripture calls believers to examine themselves, to make sure they're in the faith, right? it calls the church, right? Paul talking to the church of Corinth, for instance, examine yourselves to see whether or not you be in the faith. This is relevant for everyone in this room. Just say, uh, let, let me make sure that my confidence is in Christ alone. Let me make sure that there are the biblical evidences of true saving faith. 
Have I repented? Have I really turned away from sin and trusted in Christ alone? Do I love the brethren? Is there a trajectory of obedience? Not a track record of perfection, but a a trajectory of obedience. Are these things there? And hopefully the doctrine of hell will spur you to evaluate, but then to do what we've already done together tonight, worship. Just even in proclaiming what Christ has absorbed on our behalf and the love of the Father to love us despite our sin. What love? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken through your word and that in hearing it, our minds are renewed and we are further conformed to the image of Christ. And Father, I pray that this, um, this teaching, our consideration tonight, will spur us, Lord, to worship you, to appreciate the great love you have for us, the great sacrifice of our Savior, that it would protect us, Lord, from error, that you might use it, Lord, to be a means to fan the flames of compassion, and that, Father, that we might make known this great gospel that we treasure. Thank you for sending your Son and Him being the way of escape and the way to enjoy your presence forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.